you'll take your seats, please, and get started. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to the second and final day of the Madison Program's Conference on Natural Law and Natural Rights. I'm pleased to see you all here on a Saturday morning. Uh, I'm sure Professor George will be joining us uh, later in the morning. Uh, I want to uh, once again thank our co-sponsor the uh, program in law and public affairs at Princeton University, and in particular, Kim Lane Shepley, uh, who is the new director of that program, having come to Princeton just, uh, just this summer from the University of Pennsylvania. I also want to thank uh, our students. There are a number of students who you've seen uh, wearing name badges and steering you this way and that way. Uh, they are members of the Junior Fellows Forum, which is a group of undergraduates who have uh, affiliated themselves with the James Madison program, take in our events. Uh, uh, sometimes we do special events for them and uh, volunteer to assist at, at large events like this. So I thank each and every one of them. So uh, let me turn the mic over to Professor Dennis Patterson of Rutgers University School of Law. Dennis is a former visiting fellow of the James Madison program and a member of the James Madison Society. Dennis. Thank you, Brad. It's my pleasure to moderate this morning's session on law and obligation. To introduce our principal speaker and two commentators, and uh, we will follow the format that we observed uh, yesterday. The principal speaker will speak approximately 45 minutes, we'll have 15 minutes of comments from each commentator. Um, our principal speaker is Professor Stephen Perry. Professor Perry is the John J. O'Brien Professor of Law and Philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania. He received his LLB from Toronto and his DPhil from Oxford University. Um, your program indicates that uh, he's moved from uh, NYU to Penn. It doesn't tell you that this marks a return to the Philadelphia area. And I know I speak for everyone in the legal theory community when I say we're delighted that Stephen is back with us uh, in Philadelphia. Stephen's work is principally in the philosophical foundations of tort law and uh, law and morality and um, methodology in jurisprudence, uh, to which he's made substantial contributions. Um, our second, our, our first uh, commentator is Kent Greenewald. Kent is university professor at Columbia University, where he also received his LLB. Uh, after law school, Kent was a law clerk to Justice John Harlan of the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, Kent's work is, uh, I think, uh, fairly characterized as broad uh, in the sense that he 
works in a lot of areas that um, any one of us would find difficult to spend most of our career in. He manages to do, uh, as I can tell, at least three, law and religion, law and uh, free speech, and general jurisprudence. Um, his publications are listed for you in the program. My personal favorite is Law and Objectivity in 1992, a fabulously interesting book. Our second commentator is Gideon Rosen. He is professor of philosophy here at Princeton, where he received his PhD in 1992. He's the co-author of a book, A Subject with No Object, Strategies for Nominalist Reconstrual in Mathematics. Uh, he's also written articles, numerous articles, in metaphysics, epistemology, and moral philosophy. And in 2003 and 2004, Professor Rosen was uh, a Hauser Fellow in Global Law at New York University School of Law. So without further ado, let me turn it over to Stephen Perry. Thanks very much, Dennis. In this paper, I discuss a number of different aspects of the question. Is there a general moral obligation to obey the law, which is we saw yesterday one of John Finnis's uh, one of uh, John Finnis's claims in Natural Law and Natural Life rights. Now, my main aim in this paper is to uh, show why the question of political obligation, as I shall call it, is a central issue not just for legal philosophy in the broadest sense, or for political philosophy, but also more specifically for jurisprudence, by which I mean a philosophical study of the nature of law. The concept of obedience involves, among other things, doing what somebody else tells you to do. Although the idea of doing what somebody else tells you to do is clearly a significant dimension of our concept of law, our notion of what a law is nonetheless cannot be reduced to the idea of either an order or a command. This was made abundantly clear by heart in this critique of Austin's theory of law. An order can be issued by someone who neither has nor claims to have the authority to issue the order. Commands have the color of authority, but a command cannot include the commander within its scope. It cannot have normative content other than the imposition of an obligation, and so on. Hart's insights have led to a tremendous flowering of legal philosophy in the last 50 years. And the fact which he emphasized so strongly that the law can have normative content other than the imposition of obligations is now as universally obvious to theorists as it always was to lawyers. And theorists now take for granted that law can come into existence by means other than the deliberate prescription or enactment of obligation-imposing norms, although there's deep disagreement over how this can be so. But despite all this, the idea of one person telling another person what to do has quite understandably, continued to draw much attention from legal philosophers. Now, however, this idea is discussed not, not with a view to giving us an exhaustive characterization of what a law is, but rather with a view to showing how, if at all, political authority can be morally justified. It is, as I said earlier, a fundamental aspect of our concept of law that somebody tells somebody else what to do. It may or may not be fundamental to the concept that the person doing the telling is in a position to use coercive force to back up his demands and is prepared to do so. 
But whatever the truth may be regarding this latter point, it cannot be not denied that law involves, among many other things, one person or group of persons under authority or color of authority telling another person or group of persons what to do. To, now, to tell another person what to do under authority or under color of authority is to impose, or at least to attempt, attempt to impose, an obligation on that other person. And I should just say that when I, I will speak of obligation imposing norms in this paper, and I mean to uh, include with that uh, norms which, uh, whose creator had intended to create an obligation and not just uh, cases where an obligation was in fact created. It is thus quite understandable that the ideas of authority and obligation are often treated by contemporary legal theorists as essentially two sides of the same coin. If a given government possesses a legitimate authority, then it would have a normative power to obligate those over whom it held authority. Persons who fell within the scope of a governmental directive would be bound by it, which is just to say that they would have an obligation to obey it. A government which claims to have legitimate authority claims, at the very least, to possess a normative power to obligate its subjects. This important point has a similarly important uh, corollary, which Joseph Raz in particular has emphasized. Since the exercise of such a power by an entity as powerful as government is capable of affecting people's lives in very significant ways and possibly against their will, Governments are claiming not just practical authority in some sense, some general sense, but moral authority. The normativity of the law is, in other words, moral normativity, which means, among other things, that when governments or their agents attempt to impose obligations, they are attempting to impose moral obligations. Now, I just should just say that I'm just, I discuss in this paper uh, uh, both uh, Raz's and John Finnis's account of uh, uh, legitimate uh, political authority. I've, I assumed in the discussion here that uh, Finnis was making the same claim as Raz, namely that law claims more authority for itself. Um, in conversation with John last night, I discovered that this, this point came up in Timothy Endicott's session yesterday. In conversation with John last night, I discovered that he did not, in fact, think that law claims legal authority and that um, not moral authority. So they're, they're, my, uh, I, I just want to indicate that, that uh, in, in advance. I, I think I have uh, misunderstood John's, uh, uh, some aspects of John's argument. That's one of the premises of the discussion. Okay, it's, it's, in this paper, I discuss the arguments of two preeminent legal theorists, Joseph Raz and John Finnis, each of whom attempts to elucidate the conditions under which governments possess the systematic moral power to impose obligations on their citizens and hence to elucidate the conditions under which citizens have, if they ever do have, a general moral obligation to obey the law. Before I come to the specifics of their views, however, I would first like to discuss some preliminary issues that arise when we begin to inquire more closely into the relationship between the legitimacy of political authority on the one hand and the existence of a general moral obligation to obey the law on the other. In their respective discussions of the, of the justification of political authority, both Raz and Finnis concentrate on the case of obligation-imposing norms that exist because they were enacted or prescribed 
by a lawmaker who acted with the intention of imposing an obligation. Of course, both theorists recognize that law can have normative content other than the imposition of an obligation. Laws can, for example, create rights, liabilities, immunities, powers, and so on. And both recognize that laws can come into existence by means other than deliberate enactment. For example, through custom or the operation of a doctrine precedent. Each of these points was established more or less definitively by Hart in his critique of Austin's theory that all laws are at bottom, even if not on the surface, orders backed by threats. The truth of these points is obviously quite consistent with the claim that deliberately prescribed obligation-imposing norms, which from now on I will call directives for the sake of convenience, are the core of law and the key to whatever moral legitimacy law might possess. But if one's argument for the potential legitimacy of legal authority focuses mainly on directives as thus defined, then the fact that law consists of much more than directives calls the very least for comment. In order to draw out the theoretical implications of the fact that law can, normatively speaking, do much more than impose obligations, or at least that it claims to be able to do much more than impose obligations, it will be helpful to begin with the example of a legal system whose normative content consists, apart from foundational arrangements such as a rule of recognition, entirely of directives in the sense I just defined. In the case of such a legal system, the question, is there a general moral obligation to obey the law, is completely unexceptionable. It obviously makes sense to ask whether or not there's a general obligation to obey all the laws of the legal system, which consists of nothing but attempts to impose obligations. Of course, questions arise about what it means to obey a directive, as well as about, about what it means to say that an obligation to obey is general. But in answering these questions, we can draw on well-developed and sophisticated literature on the general issue of political obligation. The modern consensus on these questions is, I believe, it's essentially a skeptical consensus, uh, but the conceptual dimensions of it are along the following lines. A general obligation to obey the law of a legal system, which consists entirely of directives, exists if and only if everyone who is subject to the system has a moral obligation to obey each and every one of its laws simply because they are laws. To say that one has an obligation to obey a law simply because it is a law does not mean that one's reason for action of doing as the law requires must be that the law requires it. For the most part, the law is indifferent as to why one complies with the law just so long as one does so. To say that one has an obligation to obey the law because it is the law means, rather, that at least one sufficient ground or basis of the obligation is the fact that the law exists. The law need not be the only basis of the obligation. We clearly have independent moral obligations not to assault and murder people, for example. However, if one has a general moral obligation to obey the law, then each of the law's directives must be the uh, basis of obligation, even where there is an independent moral ground for doing what the directive requires. The modern consensus is, as I said, that in order to establish the existence of a general obligation to obey the law, it is necessary to show that everyone subject to a legal system has an obligation to, each, to obey each and every law simply because it is a law. This challenge must be met not just where the law produces independent moral obligations, but also where the law makes moral mistakes. 
for example, mistakes, but what justice requires. <coughs> Excuse me. Theories of political obligation almost always place limits on the extent to which the law can make moral mistakes and still give rise to a general obligation to obey the law. But it is nonetheless no easy matter to show that there is ever an obligation to obey an unjust law. Some theorists acknowledge that both a general obligation to obey the law and the specific obligations that one may have to obey particular laws can be prima facie and defeasible by other moral considerations. And John Finnis is among these. But particularly since no legal system is ever completely just, a theory of political obligation would not have shown very much if it relied too extensively on this escape route and failed to show that there is, at least sometimes, a genuine moral obligation to obey at least some unjust laws. Now, it's worth pointing out that a certain ambiguity occasionally sneaks into our talk of a general obligation to obey the law. Sometimes we use this expression to mean something like the aggregate of all the specific obligations to obey each of the legal system's individual directives, considered one by considered one by one. Often, however, we have in mind a more abstract obligation to obey the directives of the system, whatever they are. As I believe the preceding discussion about the existing consensus on the general moral obligation to obey the law suggests, the only theoretically important sense of our talk of a general obligation to obey the law is this latter abstract one. This is because the only theoretically interesting justification for general obligation to pay must be, so to speak, top-down rather than bottom-up. A top-down justification would begin with the fact that we are dealing with a system of directives and then ask which moral property or properties of the system, considered uh, as a whole, might give rise to an obligation to, be, to obey each of, each of its directives regardless of their individual content. A bottom-up justification would, would begin with the individual directives of the system, ask whether there is a moral obligation to pay each one of them considered on its own, and if the answer in each case was affirmative, conclude that there was, in the case of this particular system, a general obligation to obey the law. The conclusion that there is a general obligation to obey that had been arrived at in this aggregate of bottom-up fashion would be theoretically interesting uninteresting for many reasons, but the most important, surely, is that there is no obvious way for such an approach to establish that there could be an obligation to obey a given law just because it is a law. It seems to me the only feasible route for showing that a given law obligates just because it is a law requires us to look at the fact the law belongs to or has been generated by a system of laws. It requires, in other words, a top-down approach of some kind. Recall that I stipulated that, for present purposes, all the laws of the hypothetical legal system, of the hypothetical legal system we are considering, are directives, meaning they are all obligation-imposing norms that have been deliberately prescribed or enacted by an authorized person or body, such as a legislature. Let me now discard the assumption that the content of each law is obligation-imposing, although I will continue to assume, for the time being, that every law is a norm that was deliberately prescribed or enacted by an appropriately authorized entity. Now, however, the content of the law can include not only norms which attempt to impose an obligation, but also norms which attempt to create a power, norms which attempt to create a right, 
and so on. Once we give up the assumption that the norms of the system have to be obligation-imposing, it, no, it obviously no longer makes sense to speak of a specific obligation to obey <clears throat> that arises or might arise in the case of each individual norm. The concept of obligation, together, together with the concept of obedience, is specific to norms that attempt to create obligations. It has no direct application to norms that attempt to create a right, a power, an immunity, etc. The important question that arises when we consider the norms of what I'll call a normatively heterogeneous legal system one by one would therefore seem to be this, that the creators of the norm succeed in accomplishing what they intended to accomplish, normatively speaking, in creating the norm they created. If they intended to bring an obligation into existence, did they succeed in creating an obligation? If they intended to bring a power into existence, did they succeed in creating a power? And so on. Consider once again the distinction between the aggregate of specific obligations that one might have to the norms of a legal system, considered one by one, and the abstract obligation to obey all the norms of a system, whatever their content might be. For the reasons we just explored, there can be no specific obligation to a norm that does not create or attempt to create obligation. And to think otherwise is to commit a certain kind of conceptual error. But what about the abstract obligation to obey all the norms of the system, whatever their content might be? Is there some analog to this sense of a general obligation to obey the law, even when the normative content of the law is not restricted to directives which impose obligations? It is in this direction that we should be looking in any event, even our earlier conclusion, that this is the only sense of a general obligation to obey the law that is of theoretical interest. Admittedly, the concept of obedience seems out of place here, but might it not make sense to speak of a general obligation to conform one's behavior to all the norms of the system or to act consistently with those norms or something along those lines? Uh, there are many variations on this theme that might be proposed, but I'm not going to discuss the specifics of any of them because I don't think that there's any such proposal which can hope to succeed. The abstract general obligation to obey that we rightly think might arise within a legal system consisting only of directives simply has no analog in a legal system whose content is normatively heterogeneous. The main reason for this is not the difficulty we would undoubtedly encounter in formulating the content of the obligation, why is it an obligation uh, to obey the norms or to conform one's behavior to those norms or act consistently with them or whatever. The most fundamental difficulty, rather, is with the very idea of an obligation that took anything like this form. To see this, consider once again what it means to say that a government possesses legitimate authority over some group of persons. It means that the government has the normative power to create more morally valid norms for those persons. In the case of a legal system that consists of entirely directives, this power will be limited to the enactment of norms which impose obligations. But in a normatively heterogeneous legal system, the power of the legitimate government would be much, broad, would be much broader. Uh, it would authorize the government to enact uh, right-creating norms, power-creating norms, uh, community-creating norms, and so on. The power with such a government, uh, such a legitimate government, both claims and possesses, is, if it is not subjected to restrictions, uh, conceptually legal, 
a power to affect the normative situation of a relative person in almost any conceivable way. This means, for reasons analogous to those we discussed earlier in connection with the power to impose obligations, that such a government both claims and possesses the power to affect this person's moral situation in almost any conceivable way. How are we described this general state of affairs from the perspective of those who are subject to having an anonymous situation affected? It seems to me to be a mistake to characterize their overall normative relationship to the government by reference to a general obligation of any kind. The most appropriate description of this relationship is rather that they are under a general liability to have their normative status affected by the government. A liability rather than an obligation is, after all, the precise Hopeldian correlate for power. But in a normatively heterogeneous legal system, the analog of a general obligation in favor of law is not an obligation at all. It's instead a general liability. To consider an example, think of the various laws that create and regulate the power to contract. These laws are only valid, morally speaking, if the government has the moral authority to enact them. To say that the government has such authority is not to say that it has the power to place anyone under an obligation. It is to say, rather, that it has the power to create a power. Although it may sound to put the point this way, the government can only have this power if citizens are under a general moral liability to have these sorts of powers conferred upon them. I have no doubt that Finnis is correct to suggest that the normative relationship of citizens with their government is partly defined, even in the case of non-obligation-imposing laws, by obligation-imposing norms such as performed contracts. But this cannot be the whole story or even the most theoretically fundamental part of the story. At the moment a government with legitimate authority enacts a law which confers a power to contract, the citizen's normative situation has been altered. And that is true even though no one has at that time entered into a contract with anyone else. The justification of the government's power to confer a power may well have something to do with the fact that the government also has the power to impose obligations. But it is not obvious that this is so. And in any event, that presumably cannot be the full or complete justification of the power to confer a power. At least in the case of normatively heterogeneous legal systems, then, the genuine flip side of legitimate political authority is not general moral obligation, but rather general moral liability. To this you will undoubtedly respond that if this claim is true of a normatively heterogeneous legal system, then it must also be true of a legal system consisting entirely of directives. The Hofeldian correlative of power is always a liability, regardless of whether the power is comprehensive or merely a power to impose obligations. And in pointing this out, you would be entirely correct. In the case of a normatively heterogeneous legal system, it does not even make sense, strictly speaking, to claim that there is a general moral obligation to obey the law. It only makes sense to ask whether the law has a general normative force or general moral force or something along those lines. In the case of a legal system consisting entirely of directives, it does make sense to say that there is a general moral obligation to obey the law in either the aggregative or in the abstract senses that I spoke of earlier. But it's only in the abstract sense that the claim is in theoretical interest. In order to justify the abstract claim, we must ultimately look to whether or not persons are under a certain kind of general moral liability. This is only because we can justify the abstract claim by looking to the systemic nature of law, which in this context means the social or institutional potential of law to generate, modify, 
and discard norms over time. Legal systems generate, modify, and discard norms through the exercise of a certain kind of moral power which they claim for themselves. In the case of a legal system that for some reason could only generate obligation-imposing norms, this power would not extend beyond the creation, modification, and extinction of obligations. But from the point of view of the subjects of such a system, we could certainly speak loosely of an abstract general obligation to obey all the norms which the system generates. But they can only have such an abstract obligation if they are under a prior moral liability to have obligations thrust upon them. The most theoretical, the most important theoretical question about the normative relationship between citizens and governments asks, therefore, whether such a general moral liability exists. And it's only after we answer this question affirmatively that we can conclude that there is a general moral obligation to obey the law in anything other than an aggregated sense. And in the following sections of the paper, I examine two theories, those of Raz and Finnis, which attempt to state the conditions under which political authorities are morally legitimate. Both of them conclude that moral legitimacy depends on the existence of a morally valid power to impose obligations, the flip side of which is a general moral obligation to obey. But legal systems, in fact, claim to possess much broader moral powers, and the flip side of those powers is not an obligation to obey, but rather a liability to have one's normative situation altered. In examining those theories, one of those questions we should therefore keep in mind is whether they can be generalized so as to justify, at least potentially, the entire range of moral powers that legal systems claim for themselves. It's only if that entire range of powers can be justified that law can have the full number of force that it claims. Raz defends a theory of political authority which he calls the service conception. The details of that view are, I hope, sufficiently familiar that I do not have to review them in detail here, particularly since Raz went over them in detail yesterday. The basic idea is contained in the normal justification thesis, which holds that one person is a practical authority over another if the second will do better in complying with the reading that would apply to them by deferring to the judgment of the first than if he tries to act on his own judgment. Political authority is just a special case of practical authority thus understood. Political authority in its most central manifestations involves the government or one of its agents issuing a directive which claims to impose a moral obligation, and a directive of this kind is the central case of law. This is all according to Raz. The normal way to show that the alleged obligation exists is to show that the normal justification thesis applies. If it does, then the person or persons who fall within the scope of the directive have an obligation to obey it. If they have an obligation to obey every directive which the government issues, then they have a general moral obligation to obey the law. This account obviously focuses, as Raz has acknowledged, on the service on what Raz calls the authoritative imposition of duties and how this account figures in what can be extended to the moral justification of the broader moral powers that Raz claims for itself is a question which needs to be considered. I considered briefly in the written paper. I probably don't have time to in my comments today. Raz is skeptical about the existence of a general obligation to obey the law. 
He does not think that there is any legal system in which the normal justification basis can be shown to hold for every person and for every law which the system has in fact generated. But he does not deny that in reasonably just legal systems, at least some people have an obligation to obey at least some laws just because they are the law. According to the service conception of authority, they have such, such an obligation when the normal justification thesis applies. As this suggests, RAS does not regard the legitimacy of political authority in an all-or-nothing matter. A government can have partial authority, both in the sense that only some of its laws are ever justified, and in the sense that any given law can be justified for some people, but not for others. I will return to the question of partial authority later. First, however, I want to discuss a certain conceptual dimension of the service conception of authority as well as understands it. Even though, as a practical matter, no legal system ever possesses the full authority it claims, it must be capable of possessing such authority. If that were not the case, then the officials and institutions which claim authority would be conceptually confused, and though they can be occasionally confused, they cannot be confused systematically. Again, this is only put into that. This is because the claims and conceptions of officials are formed by and contribute to the concept of authority itself. And it might be added that because of the centrality of the concept of authority to the concept of law, those same claims by officials are formed by and contribute to the concept of law. If officials were as confused as they would have to be if they were wrong in thinking that the law is capable of having the full moral authority that it claims, the, idea of, the very idea of law would not seem to make sense. Because the concept of, concepts of law and authority used by officials, are used by officials to describe their own practice of claiming systematically and comprehensively to impose obligations on others. And because those same officials believe that they are not, they not only claim to impose obligations in this way, but actually succeed in doing so, something would have gone seriously amiss with the concepts if there could not, in fact, be any such systematically obligating practice. In order for a legal system to be capable of possessing the full authority that it claims, it must, according to Rawls, in fact possess certain non-moral properties, such as the attribute of being communicated. More importantly, for present purposes, it must also be capable of possessing, in principle if not in fact, the moral property of comprehensively and systematically obligating in just the way that it claims to do. And here, the normal justification thesis comes to the rescue. Even though it never justifies in practice all the obligations the law claims to impose, it shows that in principle those obligations are at least capable of being justified. If, implausibly, each and every person would happen to comply better with the reasons that apply to one, if you would obey each and every law on each and every occasion to which the law applies, then a general obligation to obey would exist. This is enough to show that officials are not confused in making the claims about their practice that they make, and in making the claims to impose obligations that they make, and this is so even though they are very mistaken, at least to some degree, in making these claims. I believe that Raz is correct to make the conceptual claims that he does about the concepts of authority and law, and this is one reason why the question of whether or not there can be a general obligation to obey is essential not only to political theory and legal philosophy in the broadest sense, but also to jurisprudence. But I have some doubts as to whether these difficulties can be avoided quite as readily as Raz suggests. The service conception of authority 
clearly succeeds, I believe, in showing how the law can give rise to reasons for action that people would not otherwise have. But I, do, I nonetheless do not think that it can bear all the moral and conceptual weight that Raz tries to place on it. To put the difficulty in a nutshell, the service conception of authority is not the law's conception. The reason for this is that the reasons for action that are underwritten by the normal justification thesis are not, so far as the law's own self-understanding is concerned, the right kind of reasons. And to show this, I want to focus on one type of case that Raz discusses at length, namely the type of case in which one person has authority with another because the first person possesses more expertise about some subject than the second. Consider the following example. Suppose we all have moral reason not to engage in action that would endanger the survival of a certain species of fish, for example, cod. Cod fishermen, therefore, have an underlying moral reason not to overfish. They may, however, lack the knowledge that would permit them to continue to fish without depleting cod stocks. Suppose the government uh, determines that cod, following uh, appropriate consultation, determines that cod stocks can be sustained indefinitely if cod fish fishermen follow certain rules about uh, catch size, quotas, and so on. Raz's idea is that if the government issues directives giving effect to these rules, the directives replace for the fishermen their underlying moral reasons not to endanger the survival of cod. Raz maintains that these directives are for the fishermen new moral reasons. They have those reasons because they are more likely to do what they ought to do, what they ought to do if they act in the directives than if they try to figure out for themselves how to avoid endangering cod. Suppose that the normal justification thesis does, in fact, apply to this case. That's something that has to be it's an independent moral question. Suppose that it applies so that I will do better uh, in complying with the conservation reasons that apply to me if I follow the government's directives regarding quotas, catch size, etc., than if I try to figure out these matters for myself. It seems correct to say that I have a no reason and even a moral reason that I did not have before. Moreover, as Raz says, this new reason is exclusionary in character because in order to avoid the double counting of reasons, I have to act on the directive alone and not simply take it into account in my assessment of what the underlying reasons require. Granting all this, what basis is there for saying that the directive is not only an exclusionary moral reason for me, but also an obligation, meaning in this context the obligation that I have to govern the state? So far as I am so aware, all that Raz says about this issue is that I have an obligation because my reason for action is an exclusionary reason, but it's not entirely evident why this is so. What grounds do we have for regarding the government as anything other than a moral resource that, so to speak, is just there for me? The government may be, may be correct in telling me that I have a moral reason, what I uh, have a moral reason to do. But this must not give it the power to demand of me that I comply with that reason, let alone back up that demand of coercion. And there may be a way to close this gap, but it's not immediately evident what it is. Let me try to approach this problem in a different way. Suppose Raz is right that the new reasons for action that are underwritten by the normal justification thesis are properly characterized as obligations. To whom are these obligations owed? Raz says that in expertise cases like the Cod example, here I'm quoting, the law is like a knowledgeable friend. 
perhaps in the right circumstances, one has, a, has an obligation to do as one's friend advises. But surely one does not owe that obligation to the friend. One owes it if to anyone, to oneself. Um, one has an obligation to oneself, so to speak, to get the matter right. The law, however, does not look on the, on, on the situation in that way. Not only does it regard you as being under, under an obligation, it regards you as owing that obligation to the government or some associated entity like the community or state. You do not simply have the obligation in the air or owe it to yourself. Furthermore, the law regards you as bound by its directives and cod, even if you were the world's greatest living expert on the subject. Similarly, the state of New Jersey regards you as bound by its directives and cod, even if you would comply much better with the cod reasons which apply to you if you were to follow the laws of Massachusetts instead. In short, the law does not allow for the kinds of exceptions that seem to be unavoidably built into the normal justification thesis itself. If the law's conception of authority was that of the service conception, then it would pre presumably acquiesce gracefully, like a friend, whenever it was clear that someone else knew more than it does. But that is generally not the attitude the law takes, certainly not uh, the attitude that is, so to speak, conceptually built into the law's claims. There's a further related difficulty. Raz is quite right to insist that the law's claim to moral authority is both comprehensive and systemic. The law does not claim that it gets the matter right now and then or from time to time. It insists that it gets the matter right all the time in all types of cases for everyone. In other words, the law's own self-understanding insists that, that its authority is an all-or-nothing matter. But I wish to suggest, precisely because the service conception of authority permits obligations to arise in a piecemeal fashion, it cannot be the conception of authority that adheres in the concept of law. In the paper, I go on to discuss uh, uh, the power to confer a power and how that might be justified by reference to uh, the power to impose obligations and more specifically uh, how it might be justified in part by the uh, normal justification thesis. Um, I'm not going to, this is with reference to the questions that I've raised in, uh, in uh, my discussion about uh, uh, general moral liability in the first section. I'm not going to read those comments here. I'll read that part of the paper here. I'm going to go on to go, gonna go on to Finnis. Finnis's theoretical characterization of political authority is in many respects similar to Raz's. Finnis agrees that the central case of political authority involves the deliberate issuing of a directive which attempts to impose an obligation. He agrees that such a directive, if morally valid, creates an exclusionary reason for those to whom it applies. And he agrees that the law claims to obligate not on a piecemeal or case-by-case basis, but rather systematically. As Finnis puts the point, it is part of the law's own self-understanding that each obligation stipulating law is a member of a system of laws which cannot be weighed or played off against one another, but which constitute a set coherently applicable of, of a set coherently applicable to all situations, and which exclude all unregulated or private picking and choosing amongst the members of the set. That's a quote from Finnis. Both Raz and Finnis think that political authority is a special case of a more general concept of 
practical authority. But since they do not, in, at least in my view, entirely agree with the more general concept, I will focus in the following remarks on political authority uh, alone. Both agree that one of the moral premises, which is presupposed by the concept of authority, at least in the, in the political context, is that the activity of governments in issuing obligation stipulating directives uh, has the capacity to achieve moral good. Both agree, moreover, that this moral premise is true. For as governments have the capacity to do good by making it possible for, for people to comply with the reasons that already apply to them by giving them new reasons of a special intermediate kind. On this view, Raz's view, natural government is only legitimate if and to the extent that its subjects would better conform with right reason by complying with the government's directives. It's important to note that the applicability of the normal justification thesis does not, in general, appear to depend on whether or not anyone actually pays any attention to the government. It does not, in other words, depend on what I will call the government's efficacy. There may well be cases, for example, various kinds of coordination problems, to which the normal justification thesis cannot apply in the absence of a general disposition on the part of the government subjects to follow its directives. But this does not appear to be so for the expertise cases I was discussing earlier, since the publicly issued directives of even, even an habitually ignored shadow government are capable, if the government is sufficiently well informed about COD, of changing people's reasons for action with respect to their cognitive activities. Finnis, like Raz, accepts that it is in the nature of law for governments to issue directives that claim to impose obligations on the government's subjects. He further accepts that it's a moral fact that this kind of activity on the part of governments can, at least sometimes, achieve some moral good. As we saw, Raz at this stage of the argument invokes the normal justification thesis, but Finnis's argument moves in a different direction. Instead of looking to a general, authority, a general theory of how anyone can, in principle, be a practical authority for anyone else, Finnis looks to a special feature of the political situation. It's not unique to the political situation, but it's, it, it is nonetheless a special a feature which distinguishes the political situation from practical authority as well as general conceives it. And that special, special feature is the sheer power or influence that governments typically have over their subjects. As Finnis puts the point, and here I'm quoting, the fact that the say-so of a particular person or body or configuration of persons will be, by and large, complied with and acted upon has consequences for morality. Let me refer to the fact that the government has this effect on the behavior of its subjects as efficacy. It is presumably possible for a government to at least sometimes change them for the better, morally speaking, just by influencing people's behavior, whether or not it succeeds in, impo in, in imposing an obligation on anybody. But Finnis is not concerned with that kind of moral improvement. He's concerned, rather, with the kind of moral improvement that can be brought about by an exercise of legitimate authority, i.e. by the exercise of a power to issue directives that are, as a matter of moral fact, binding or obligatory. So how do we get from efficacy to obligation? Although this is not quite how he puts the point, I believe that Finnis is making something like the following claim. An efficacious government, which claims legitimate moral authority for itself, 
actually has such authority, together with the responsibility to exercise that authority properly, because it is in a position, owing to the fact that people, for the most part, do what it says, to advance the common good in certain ways that would not otherwise be achievable. This claim is moral in nature. If it is true, it is a moral truth. Expressed in this very general way, it has some moral, it has some plausibility. Uh, but difficulties potentially arise when we consider the scope of the authority that law claims for itself. Finnis, as already noted, acknowledges that the law claims to obligate systematically. The law presents itself, in his words, as a seamless web, and it is accordingly part of the law of self-understanding that every directive binds everyone to whom it applies on every occasion to which it is applicable. It is part of the law of self-understanding, in other words, that it gives rise to a general obligation to obey. According to Finnis, a lawmaker's act of obligation stipulation has its peculiar action, I'm quoting here, has, a, has its peculiar action guiding relevance and force precisely because it can play its role in a train of practical reasoning whose conclusion it expressly anticipates. Um, Finnis sets out that train of reasoning in uh, uh, a scheme of practical reasoning which takes the following form. Step A, we need for the sake of the common good to be law-abiding. Step B, where phi is stipulated by the law as obligatory, the only way to be law-abiding is to do phi. Therefore, we need, meaning it is obligatory, obligatory for us, to do phi, where phi has been legally stipulated to be obligatory. Now, I'll refer to this train of reasoning as the paradigmatic scheme of practical reasoning in law, or the paradigmatic schema for short. In Finnis's view, the law treats step A of the schema which says we need for the sake of the common good to be law-abiding, as a framework principle or postulate which is invariant in force, so that in contemplation of law, each obligation stipulating directive is also invariant in force. This means, if I understand this correctly, that in the eyes of the law, there is no difference in the strength among legal obligations. By treating step A as an invariant framework principle, the law isolates it or tries to isolate it, from practical reasoning in general. But when we step back and we relocate step A in what Finnis calls the general flow of practical reasoning, we see that step A can, as a general moral matter, vary in force. The extent to which we need to be law-abiding in order to respect the common good does, after all, vary from law to law, depending on which values and principles are at stake. Despite this complication, Finnis argues that even when we step back from the law's intrasystemic self-understanding and read the paradigmatic scheme of what he calls the unrestricted moral sense, we see that each law in a system of laws remains morally binding, although now only presumptively and defeasibly so. There is thus a moral obligation to obey each and every law, and this is so even though, according to Finnis, the force of the obligation varies from law to law, and even though the obligation is, in the case of some laws, defeated by other moral considerations. As Finnis recognizes, a certain circularity threatens here, since an efficacious government can serve the common good just by getting people to behave in a certain way. And this seems to be possible, even uh, this seems to be so, even if the government does not have the power to obligate them to act in that way. It nonetheless seems to me that Finnis has correctly captured the laws on self-understanding. 
the law claims that, one, we have an obligation to do what it tells I have an obligation to do what the law tells me to do because I have an obligation to serve the common good. And two, in the types of situations that are addressed by a particular law, I can only serve the common good by doing as the law requires. Of course, the concepts of law and authority are all only saved from the kinds of serious conceptual confusion that Raz discusses if the law is claimed to obligate and in principle be vindicated for every single law. Finnis argues that not only could, not only can the law's claim be true, but that, at least in central cases of law, it is true, if only presumptively and defeasibly. This could only be so, he recognizes, if the paradigmatic schema is both a valid and a sound form of practical reasoning, not just in contemplation of law, but in contemplation of unrestricted morality. Not only does Finnis argue that the paradigmatic schema is a valid form of practical reasoning, he also argues that it is a generally sound form of practical reasoning because step A holds in a much wider set of circumstances than might at first appear to be the case. His strategy here is to point to the moral complexity and plurality of the common good as opposed to what might be good for individuals. The law can advance the common good by bringing about states of affairs that might not, in particular cases, be good for me. But, Finnis argues, I nonetheless have a general obligation, ultimately born out of fairness and reciprocity, to do as the law requires because in central cases of legal systems, the law considered as a whole confers on me, as it confers on everyone else, both benefits and burdens. Now, it falls outside the scope of this paper to consider whether or not it is possible to vindicate a general moral obligation to obey the law along the lines that Finnis suggests. For present purposes, I will simply point out that he seems to offer the right kind of argument since it makes the existence of a general obligation to obey turn on substantive moral considerations which have to do with the efficacy of governments, that is, with the impact that governments' obligations stipulating activities can and do have on people's actual behavior. It's one thing to say that governments are capable of affecting people's reasons for action, and another to say that they are capable of affecting people's reasons for action because, or at least partly because, people will, for the most part, do what the government tells them to do. It seems to me that by making the disposition of subjects to obey this particular government central to the justification of the government's legitimate authority over those particular subjects, Finnis goes some way towards showing why the government's directives gives them not just an exclusionary reason for action, but also a particularized obligation that is owed to that very government. Thank you. First, I'd like to say what a great pleasure it is to be here to celebrate the anniversary of John Finnis's book, which has greatly enriched my understanding of natural law and which I've learned a great deal from over the years. I agree with a lot in Stephen Perry's thoughtful analysis of the possibility of a general moral or political obligation to obey the law. Like him, and in accord with his understanding of John Finnis and Joseph Ross, 
I take such an obligation to mean that there's a moral reason of, of whatever weight to obey every legal norm. Like him, I don't think such an obligation exists. His main thesis is that many legal norms don't impose obligations, and as to them, one might better speak of moral liability than moral obligation. I'm going to come back to this thesis in due course, but I first want to explain how my skepticism cuts more deeply than his and why I reject some of the premises from which he starts. He favors a top-down approach to the issue of political obligation, one that focuses on a system of laws. Well, I agree with him that a purely bottom-up approach that takes one legal norm after another will prove unilluminating. But I also believe we have to pay attention to the laws that we and the participants in other legal systems actually have. In other words, I think we need a combination of top-down and bottom-up perspectives. Now, there's a big jump here, but you've got to trust me it's relevant. Some rules of golf are quite strict. When a player's ball lies behind a tree, only she may know if she's moved it before hitting her shot. One player disqualified himself from a major tournament, I think it was the British Open this summer, because he thought he might have moved his ball and he didn't report it that afternoon. <laughs> One would feel comfortable saying the tradition of the game is that golfers have a moral obligation to comply with the rules, or at least that rule. Well, I say something about foot faults in tennis, but I'm going to pass over that. What are we to make of fouls in basketball? They often lead to penalty shots, and a player who commits five or six fouls is disqualified from continuing to play. But we also know that referees don't call many forms of bodily contact that if you looked at the rule book would count as fouls, and that the intentional committing of fouls that referees will call is universally accepted as an appropriate strategy at various stages of games. Is there a general moral obligation not to commit fouls? No. Does basketball or the rules of basketball or basketball officials claim such an obligation? No, again. Well, law is not a game or collection of games, and this might be one of those areas where an analysis of mandatory norms and an obligation to obey is is one of those areas in which references to games are misleading analogies for law. But many legal norms that are not unjust in the ordinary sense of being outright immoral are excessively detailed, crafted over-inclusively for convenient enforcement, or just plain foolish. Consider many speed limits, and I also have jaywalking, but I'm going to forget about jaywalking this morning. As one approaches New York and the New Jersey Turnpike, the posted official speed limit is 55 miles per hour. Apart from crowded rush hours, snowstorms, and torrential downpours, no one is driving below that speed. Traffic is moving at 65 to 70 miles per hour. Why is the speed limit 55, apart from historical reasons? Well, we can imagine those who've set the limit reasoning as follows. Usually, we expect and want traffic to go about 65. However, when people are driving dangerously in crowded conditions, as well as when officers ticket people going over 65, it's convenient to have a clear legal rule that has undoubtedly been broken. Now, so, and this is not these people thinking anymore, but how the system works. So long as officers don't use forbidden criteria like race to decide whom they're going to stop and ticket, Judges will enforce the 55-mile-per-hour limit. A defendant's claim, I wasn't going faster than anybody else, uh, will prove unavailing. 
Patrol officers, judges, and motorists have at least a rough understanding both of the basis for the formal speed limit and of its consistent non-enforcement in ordinary driving conditions. Well, whether this descriptive account is accurate, uh, I think it's accurate, but it's anyway, whether it's accurate is largely beside the point. It could be accurate. Nothing in the concept of law renders it inaccurate. And also beside the point, although this may be a bit more arguable, is whether the strategy is a fair strategy or an appropriate strategy, or we would say they shouldn't do it that way. Now, if legislators, enforcement officials, other drivers, and citizens more generally do not expect me or want me to drive under 55, it's hard to see how I have an iota of moral obligation to do that. And it's hard even to see to whom such an obligation might be owed. Perry tells us, uh, and this is quoting, uh, Roz is quite right to insist that the law's claim to moral authority is both comprehensive and systematic, and that, and this is again quoting, as Finnis puts the point, the law presents itself as a seamless web. But why should we assume that the law claims that every legal norm that creates a legal obligation carries a moral obligation? to comply with its terms. Just how does the law make such a claim if legislators, enforcement officials, judges, and citizens don't see things that way? The locution of the law claims here, I think, involves a misleading over-conceptualization. Now, I've got to confess, I have a book that has a chapter called The Claims of Law, but, uh, I mean, I do some qualifications in that, but I, I now wonder whether that doesn't just lead to avoidable confusion, that way of speaking. Thus, in respect to the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit, I believe that drivers don't have a moral obligation to comply, nor does the law, in some mysterious sense, claim that they do have such an obligation. Now, one might avoid this conclusion by claiming at the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit it's not, it's not really the law, but it's hard for a positivist to take that position, and I won't try to work out uh, how, from a natural law point of view, one might uh, try to develop such an argument. So what moral obligation might a driver have with respect to going 60 miles an hour in the 55-mile uh, zone? Well, she might have a moral obligation to accept enforcement measures directed against her, as an athlete is obligated to accept the decision of a referee. Even if she has no moral obligation to comply directly with a norm that creates a legal obligation, this particular one, a person may well have a moral obligation not to resist enforcement when it occurs. Now, in respect to circumstances like those I've described, there's a gap between legitimate legal authority and both an actual moral obligation to apply, comply, as that's or ordinarily conceived, and assertions that the law claims such an obligation. The people that count may exercise legitimate authority in establishing a rule that's enforceable in courts without creating or claiming a moral obligation to obey. Now let me turn to Perry's main thesis. Whatever may be true about legal norms that direct behavior and the speed limit does fit in that category, we cannot think that people have an obligation to obey norms that create powers and liabilities. Uh, at most, these norms make us subject to a moral liability. I think here we need to distinguish two questions that Perry's account poses. 
The first is whether the government's power to confer a power to contract or do similar things uh, looks solely to the government's uh, power to impose obligations. The second uh, question is whether affected individuals lie under a moral obligation to comply with such norms. Well, as to the first question, Perry says that the government's authority to create power-conferring rules rests partly but not solely on its power to impose obligations. That strikes me as a sound position, but I don't think it quite answers the second question. Now, Perry's quite right that the individual cannot have a moral obligation to comply with a power-conferring legal norm viewed in isolation. Once the power is exercised, once a power is a person is placed under a contractual duty, he might have a moral obligation to comply with its terms, or he might have a moral obligation to pay damages if he breaches, and he knows what the damages are, everybody agrees what the damages are, or he might have an obligation to pay damages that a court awards, or he might have all three of these moral obligations. So we might speak loosely of the law of contracts as claiming that one or more of these moral obligations exists. Now, it's interesting that Perry concentrates on the government's claim through a court to impose a moral obligation when the court awards damages. Perhaps he's influenced here by standard theories of efficient breach, and he's hesitant to assert that the law asserts a claim that people always have a moral obligation to perform contracts. Now, given his analysis, I think we could contend that people always have a moral obligation to obey every legal norm that applies to them only by treating power-conferring rules as fragments of more extensive rules that impose legal obligations. Uh, HLA Hart provides uh, strong reasons for rejecting this approach if one's thinking about the nature of the legal system. Uh, Kelson actually has some kind of uh, approach of that sort. But I think I don't think that completely settles the question of whether the approach might be defensible if we're asking about how citizens stand in relation to the law. But I, I'm inclined to agree with Perry even about that. The point I want to make is different. Perry does think that the government claims uh, to impose a moral obligation on the contract breaker to, uh, breaker to pay damages. And, excuse me. He does think that the government claims that people have a moral obligation to pay damages awarded by the court. But he hesitates to say that the law claims a person is always under a moral obligation not to break the contract in the first place. Now, why is that? Presumably, we need to have a sense of how legislators, judges, contracting parties, and citizens regard contracting and contract breaking. Some decades ago, we could confidently have said that the law of marriage claims that there is always or almost always a moral reason, in fact a strong one, not to terminate a marriage with a partner who has not violated the marriage contract. The law of divorce reflected, informed, perhaps embodied the law's view of marriage. Now, one could quibble about how I'm treating the law of marriage here, but anyway, we definitely cannot conclude that according to some magic of conceptual logic, the law claims only a moral obligation to submit to enforcement of legal duties that are privately created, though it claims a moral obligation to perform all general duties created by public bodies. Rather, for both legislated duties and, and court-created public duties 
and duties created privately according to power conferring rules, we have to ask whether the relevant officials and other people that are involved explicitly or implicitly claim that people have a moral obligation to comply in the first instance or claim only that they have a moral obligation to accept enforcement. And we must also ask what sort of moral obligation, if any, people actually have. So there's a question, what's the law claiming or what are people claiming about it and what moral obligation actually exists? Now, in all probability, claims about a moral obligation to comply in the first instance and the actuality of that obligation will attach more frequently to publicly created legal obligations than to privately created ones. But conceptual analysis alone cannot get us there. The kinds of legal obligations with which Perry starts, those created by directive legal norms, turn out not to be categorically as different from legal obligations created according to power conferring rules as parts of Perry's paper suggest. Thank you. All right. Um, the law claims authority for its pronouncements, and this fact raises three distinguishable questions. First, what's the content of the law's claim when it claims authority for its pronouncements? What exactly is it claiming? Second, what would it take for the law to have the authority it claims for itself? Under what conditions would the law, in fact, have this sort of authority? And finally, does it have the authority it claims for itself? Are those conditions satisfied in legal systems in general, in modern legal systems, and so on? A standard answer to the first question runs like this. The law mainly issues commands. A command is authoritative when it creates an obligation in the person to whom it's addressed. So to say that the law claims authority for itself is to say that the law claims that its commands impose obligations on subjects. Now, Professor Perry rejects this standard answer as too narrow. It would be fine if all the law did was to make issue commands. But in fact, the law does quite a bit more than that. The law purports. <laughs> the law purports to confer powers, rights, liabilities, privileges, immunities, and so on. And insofar as the law makes claims like that, which aren't reducible to commands, the authority the law claims for itself can't be simply the capacity to issue authoritative commands. I think that's absolutely right. Um, I'm not sure exactly what its significance is for the larger debate, but it seems to me an absolutely correct point. The ancient question, is there a general moral obligation to obey the law, is insufficiently general. The more general question is, does the law in fact have the normative power to alter the normative condition of subjects in the various ways in which it purports to do so? So one main aim of Professor Perry's paper is to make precisely that point, and it seems to me a good point. The other is to consider two main answers to the second question, the question about the conditions under which the law has the authority it claims for itself, the answers of Professor Raz and Professor Finnis. I'm going to say something about Perry's discussion of Raz. Uh, but since Professor Raz is here, I can speak for himself, and since I don't know the view all that well, I'm not going to attempt to answer Perry's objection to Raz. I'm just going to make a bunch of distinctions. 
and, re and then reformulate some of the questions so that it will be, I hope, a bit clearer exactly what the point of debate between them is supposed to be. All right, so let's focus on the part of the law that does consist in directives or explicitly enacted legal commands. It's supposed to be common ground that the law is authoritative in this domain just in case it succeeds in imposing obligations. More explicitly, the law is authoritative if whenever it commands X to do A, it follows that X is obliged to do A simply in virtue of the fact that the law has commanded him to do so. That's supposed to be compatible with X is being obliged to do A for other reasons. Also, the authority consists in the law's capacity to ground the obligation of X to do A by commanding it to do A. Okay, the first question I want to ask is, what kind of obligation are we talking about here? Suppose the guy at the door instructs me not to bring my coffee into the auditorium. Uh, he didn't instruct me or order me. In fact, asked very nicely. But suppose he had ordered me or commanded me to leave my coffee at the door. He's got the authority to do that. His command might have any number of effects on my normative situation. It might make it the case that I am morally obliged not to bring my coffee into the room. It might make it the case that I owe it to him not to bring my coffee into the room. That I have a directed moral obligation owed to him, or maybe to his boss or the person for whom he speaks, to comply with his command. Alternatively, the command might simply have the effect of making it the case that I should not bring my coffee into the room. This should here is not a moral should. It's a generic practical should. To say that I shouldn't bring my coffee into the room is to say that all things considered, the thing to do is for me to leave my coffee at the door. That's not in general a moral claim. So when the law claims that its commands impose obligations, what sorts of obligations does it have in mind? Undirected moral obligations? Directed moral obligations owed, for example, to the state? Or simply generic practical obligations? There are three possibilities there. One might endorse any of those three claims or some mixture of them. Before we come back to this question, I want to note another sense in which the law might be said to claim authority for itself. For many theorists, the main challenge in this area isn't so much to explain how the state might succeed in imposing obligations of whatever sort, placing commands. The real question is to explain how the state might be justified in using violence to compel obedience. Suppose Smith needs your help, and you can easily help him. Those facts, together with background facts, might well make it the case that you are under an obligation in each of the three senses I just mentioned to help Smith out. It might be the case that you're morally obliged to help him out. It might be the case that you owe it to him to help him out. And it might be the case that all things considered, the thing to do is to help him out. But still, even though you might have obligations in those three senses to come to Smith's aid, it wouldn't follow that Smith or anyone else has the right to compel you to come to his aid. That's just to say that it might be so that the law imposes obligations to comply with its demands, even though there's a further question about whether the law has the authority to enforce its commands. And as Professor Greenwald actually says in his comments, things might come apart in the other direction. The law might have the authority to enforce its commands without those commands imposing ordinary obligations to comply. So when we ask whether the law has the authority it claims for itself, we might be asking whether its commands in fact succeed in imposing obligations of any of those three sorts, or we might be asking about enforcement authority. Does the law have the moral authority, let's suppose, to enforce its commands? Those are all different questions. 
With those distinctions in mind, let me say something about Raz on authority. It's common ground in this discussion, at least, that the law claims obligation imposing authority of some sense, in some sense, for all of its commands. Raz, of course, famously denies that the law actually has this kind of authority to the extent that it claims it. But he doesn't deny that the law makes the claim. So which sort of claim is the law making when it claims obligation imposing authority for itself, according to Raz? I don't know if Raz actually offers a completely general answer to this question, but the general discussion of authority and of the normal justification thesis for authority suggests that for the most part in his discussions of these matters, Raz is concerned in the first instance with generic practical authority. Consider a case of non-legal authority for a second. My neighbor is an expert in gardening. I'm not. He orders me to prune my roses. Now, the conditions for the normal justification thesis are satisfied. I'll do better in complying with the reasons that apply to me in this domain if I defer to my friend rather than trying to work things out for myself. In this sort of case, assuming the rest of the background is in place, his, his command is authoritative, so I am required or obliged to prove my roses. But this can't be a claim about moral obligation. There's just no moral interest in the picture here. And it's certainly not the case, as Perry suggests, as Perry notes, it's certainly not the case that I owe it to my friend to prove my roses. No, all that follows from the fact that an authoritative command has been issued here is that I should prove my roses. It's a little odd to speak of obligation here at all. But it's a an excusable, excusable abuse of language. To say that when all things considered, I must prove my roses or I should prove my roses, there's a sense in which I'm under an obligation to prove my roses, but it's not a moral obligation and it's not an obligation owed to anyone else. Let's call that sort of obligation practical obligation and an authority which imposes obligations like that a practical authority. The general discussion of authority in Ross only shows the conditions under which practical authority can arise from an authoritative command. From the fact that the conditions of the normal justification thesis are satisfied, nothing follows about whether there's a moral obligation to comply or a directive moral obligation to comply. Nothing along those lines follows. In the absence of further premises about the kind of case we have, and in particular, further premises about the reasons on which the authority draws in issuing his authoritative command. All right. So that's about Ross on authority in general, not about legal authority yet. Okay, that sets the stage for a discussion of Professor Perry's objections to Ross. There are several objections, and they all are supposed to elaborate the claim that the service conception of authority is not the law's conception. All the objections fall under that rubric. Now, you might wonder why this should be an objection to Ross on his own terms. After all, as has been clear over the past two days, Ross is perfectly pleased to say that many of the law's claims about its own authority are mistaken. If the law can be mistaken about the extent of its authority, why couldn't the law be mistaken about the character of its authority, about the kind of authority it has? I suppose the answer has got to be this. It is a feature of Ross's view that while the law can be quite wrong about its authority, about the extent of its authority, it must be the sort of thing that could, in principle, have the authority it claims for itself. The law's normative claims may be false, but they shouldn't be conceptually confused. 
Given this, we can think of Perry's objections in the following spirit. The law doesn't just claim blanket practical authority for its claims, commands. The law claims that its commands impose a certain distinctive kind of authority. So it's not enough to show that the law could, in principle, have blanket practical authority. If it were a universal expert and ideal coordinating mechanism, then even on Raz's view, it would have universal practical authority. But it's not enough to show that. What Ross's view has to show is that the law could, in principle, have the authority, the power, to impose the kinds of obligations that it thinks of itself as imposing. And whether the law can do that is now a further question. Okay. So here are the objections. Let's concede, as Perry does, at least for the sake of argument, that when the conditions for the normal justification thesis are met, an authoritative command provides its target with an exclusionary reason to comply, a reason that subsumes and replaces the underlying reasons on which the command is based. Let's agree that we can call exclusionary reasons of that sort obligations. So the law, when these conditions of the normal justification thesis are satisfied, does indeed provide subjects with a practical obligation to conform. Here's the question, one of the questions that Professor Perry then asks, quoting now, to whom are these obligations owed? Perhaps in the right circumstances, one has an obligation to do as one friend advises, but surely one does not owe that obligation to the friend. One owes it, if anyone, to oneself. The law, however, doesn't look on the situation that way. It regards it as owing the obligation to the government or the community or the state. So, first challenge to Ross. Can you explain how it could possibly be that the law generates directed obligations owed to the community or the state? That's a good question. But, now, first of all, it's something of an exaggeration, it seems to me, to say that the law, in general, conceives of its commands as generating obligations owed to the community or the state. I don't think private law functions that way on its own self-conception. It's not clear to me anyway that the law of contracts, for example, conceives of itself as imposing obligations owed to the state as opposed to imposing conditional obligations owed to the contracting parties. But set that aside. Let's focus on public law. Criminal law, for example. Here it's perfectly clear that Perry's descriptive claim is right. The law does, in many cases, think of itself as imposing obligations on citizens owed to the state. How could the law possibly do that on Ross's conception? Take the law of treason, for example. There are laws against treason, aiding and lending any comfort to the enemy, espionage, and so on. Break those laws and you violate it by the law's own conception, an obligation you owe to the state or the community or the government. How do directed obligations like that get generated? I don't know the answer, but here's a sketch, internal to Ross's view, I think, of how an answer might go. Look, suppose my friend is an expert, not in gardening, but in pediatric medicine. My child is sick, and he directs me to give him a pill. The conditions for the normal justification thesis are satisfied, so his directive imposes an obligation on me. What I should do is give my kid the pill. To whom is this obligation owed? Not to my friend, to my child, obviously. Why? Because the reasons my friend's advice draws on include pre-existing moral obligations to my child. If my friend had to defend his directive, he'd say, look, you owe it to your son to secure his health. Giving him the pill is the way to do that, so you should give him the pill. 
In general, I suggest that a view like Ross's can explain how directed obligations, and directed moral obligations for that matter, emerge according to the service conception in the following way. When the authoritative source who gives advice or directives draws on pre-existing reasons which include moral obligations owed to various people, and when this advice consists in way of specifying and directing the performance of pre-existing obligations owed to others, then the obligations that emerge according to the services conception are not just generic, undirected, and practical obligations. They're obligations that are owed to those whose interests and rights were taken into account in giving the advice in the first place. So go back to treason. Very plausibly, we all have obligations owed to the community to preserve it, to preserve just institutions, and so on. The law, in enacting the statutes against treason, takes those pre-existing obligations into account. That's why the law can appropriately conceive itself as imposing not just generic practical obligations against treason, but obligations owed to the state against treason. Anyway, that's a sketch of how directed obligations might emerge within Razin County. A sort of answer on Razin's behalf to one of Perry's challenges. I'll mention one more of Perry's objections. There, there are several of them, obviously. Here's another. And in, in this case, I don't have a straightforward answer on Raz's behalf. I just want to refocus the objection and hear from the audience, I suppose, what the answer might be. This is the problem of expert exemption. The law regards you, I'm quoting now, as bound by its directives on cause, even if you're the world's greatest living expert on the subject. Similarly, the state of New Jersey regards you as bound by its directives on COD, even if you would comply much better with the COD reasons that apply to you if you were to follow the laws of Massachusetts instead. If the law's conception of authority was that of a service conception, then it would presumably acquiesce gracefully like a friend whenever it was clear that someone else knew more than it does, but that is never the attitude the law takes. Quite right. What's the objection to Suppose Jones knows more about what right reason requires when it comes to cod fishing than the state does. Its commands are then, in Reza's sense, not authoritative for Jones. They impose no obligations on him, though he may have obligations to comply for other reasons. In such a case, it may be that Jones does nothing wrong in breaking the law. This is an internal consequence of Reza's view. To say that the law disagrees is just to say that the law is mistaken about the scope of its authority. But it may well be that that's a conclusion Raz is perfectly happy to accept. But now suppose the law in question is a criminal law and that Jones is therefore liable to punishment. It's an extremely plausible principle that criminal penalties are only justified uh, when the defendant has violated a moral obligation, when he's done something morally wrong. If we accept this principle, which would have to be qualified in all kinds of ways, of course, but if we accept it in general, then the objection to Raz might be this. On his view, the criminal law should recognize an I knew better excuse. That is, the defendant should have the opportunity to show that the conditions for the normal justification thesis aren't satisfied in this case. In fact, he knows better than the state does about what reason requires in this domain. That would improve the justice 
uh, the criminal justice system by seeing to it that a certain range of people who are in fact doing nothing morally wrong in breaking the law aren't punished. But the law doesn't do that. So is it Raza's view incompatible with a very central feature of the criminal justice system as we actually find it? Isn't it at odds with the law's self-conception? I don't know what the complete answer to this objection looks like, but the first thing to say is obviously it would be completely unworkable for the law to recognize that sort of excuse. It would require trial courts to reconsider the substantive merits of legislation when some punitive expert says, I do better, that law's not a good one, here's a better one, or here's why my judgment is better than the law's judgment in this case. That's so clearly beyond the competence of trial courts or possibly any court that it's no mystery that the law fails to recognize that sort of defense. Now, here is, if, if, if that's all that's said, then one needs to say the following on Ross's behalf. It is, to some extent, a defect in the criminal justice system that it doesn't recognize this excuse. Here is a domain in which, at least in principle, some people who are under no moral obligation to comply are going to be punished for non-compliance. It would be better in some ways if this defense were available, since there is no institutionally feasible mechanism for allowing this sort of defense its effect. The law is imperfect, but maybe as perfect as it can be in failing to recognize it. So that's to accommodate Carrie's point. There is a sense in which the service conceptions of conception of authority isn't the law's self-conception. It may nonetheless be that compatible with the service conceptions being the true story, the law is fully justified, given its limits, in operating as it does rather than in accordance with perfect justice as the service conception might understand it. We'll have a few minutes of rejoinder from Professor Perry. Uh, a very few minutes. There are a lot of uh, thank you very much for both those comments. There's uh, a lot there I'm going to be able to touch on. A couple of points in a very, in, uh, very abbreviated uh, fashion. Um, Kent says we need to pay attention to the laws that we actually have in considering the question of whether or not we have a general moral obligation to obey the law, in particular, when, in particular whether we take a top-down or bottom-up approach. Um, he points to the consistent non-enforcement of many legal norms and says this is relevant to uh, the question of whether or not we have an obligation to obey and also to the question of um, a moral obligation to obey and also to the question of what the law is uh, actually claiming. Um, and he's, it's, it's, if I understand correctly, he's saying in the case of the 55 mile per hour speed limit, the law is not... Uh, claiming that we have a moral obligation there, and that can be seen in, in the law's practice and uh, the very fact of non-enforcement and so on. Um, it's, it's, it's not clear to me that that is so, that consistent non-enforcement or actual practice or rules on the ground in that sense has uh, uh, lead us to, to modify our, uh, our understanding of what the law is as a conceptual matter claiming. And this isn't just a matter of what's in in, in anyone's, anyone's um, mind about that particular law. This is in part of a conceptual claim about the nature of law, which arises about what, uh, uh, that arises from what officials and uh, agents of government think in general. Um, I mean, it's, 
But, but, I, was all, but I would also point here to the fact that, uh, as Ken himself pointed out, if the issue does come to the come to court, the law, the, the court's not going to accept the excuse that um, uh, the law isn't consistently enforced, that you weren't uh, going any faster than anybody else. It's going to convict you. That's not going to be, uh, that's not going to be the excuse. I mean, that seems to me to reflect the true uh, uh, general claims to authority that the law is making, that it's, that's, uh, 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 governments are, cl are claiming. There's, there, it, it's true that there's a discretion, and the disc a discretion partly recognized by law on the part of uh, law enforcement uh, officials. And I don't have a good account of that discretion. A lot more has to be said about that, but I'm not sure that that alone, or that together with certain other facts about the practice of law on the ground alone should uh, lead us to uh, any rash conclusions about what's uh, more general claims. Claims that uh, one is obligated to um, obey, and on the on the contract example, um, I didn't. I apologize because I didn't actually read this section of the paper in, in uh, any detail. But, uh, um, on uh, the justification of a, of, of, a, of a power to confer a power, um, I suggested. I'm mean, actually sort of tried to show uh, how um, Raz might argue that. Uh, the justification of a power to, co to confer a power uh, could be justified in part, I don't think it'd be justified entirely, but in part by looking ahead to the fact that uh, the government will uh, justify and impose uh, certain future obligations, uh, that it will justify and enforce certain future obligations that it will impose, uh, namely um, damage awards. Now, I, uh, I didn't mean to say in suggesting that line of argument. I was actually, actually endorsing it. I was trying to show how um, what one could make an argument of that kind, which would show how the power to impose obligations is um, essential to the laws more general claims of authority, but uh, not exhaustive. But in making that kind of argument, uh, I didn't mean to suggest that um, the law was claiming that people only had an obligation to accept enforcement and not also an obligation to uh, perform their contracts. I mean, I think the law is saying that they have an obligation to perform their contracts. As is Finnis's point, there's a general legal norm to the effect that you should perform your contracts. I think it's perfectly feasible, to, perfectly in order to think that the law is, um, is uh, saying that. The point is that it only actually um, attempts to impose an obligation itself um, on the specific parties involved when it comes to enforcement. Before that, it's just a, at most a general norm along the lines of uh, performing contracts. I think that's a, that's a, that general norm, if it exists, is, um, is uh, it's, 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 it's not an explicit claim by the government. It's simply one that's implied in this general, in, in, in the, by the general exercise of, it, of its power to confirm a power. Um, the government only actually, only actually explicitly exercises uh, a power to impose obligations when it issues in a, a, a damage award or a remedy of some kind. So it seems to me that it's the exercise of uh, an obligation imposing power in that sense that it should most centrally be at issue when we ask whether or not the obligation imposing power can figure in the justification of the power to confer a power. That is clear. 
Uh, okay, on, um, on uh, Gideon's points, uh, for the most part, it was, I think, uh, trying to clarify both the questions that I was asking and the answers that uh, Raz does and might give. And for to the extent that the questions are, these points are clarified, I, I tend to um, uh, I tend to uh, agree with him. He asked him among other things, does the law have the power to enforce its command to, to uh, uh, enforce its commands by force as opposed to simply impose obligations initially directives. And I agree that that's a, that's a, a very important question. Um, uh, it's a further question that I wasn't in fact considering. It's, 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 it's uh, uh, some, some um, accounts of authority take that question to be the central question. Raz's does not. And I think that, I think, Raz follows Finnis. Uh, the power to uh, enforce by enforce commands uh, or directives by uh, force is not um, uh, a, a claim just central to the laws and self-understanding of what it's doing or uh, to its uh, uh, general moral authority. Uh, and I was just following Raz on that, but I mean, clearly the law does, as a practical matter, claim to have the power to enforce its commands by force or coercion. Uh, it, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just a question that I wasn't addressing as to whether or not this had that power. Um, what kind of obligations are we talking about when we uh, talk about an obligation to be in the law? And, uh, uh, Gideon sets out three possibilities here uh, undirected moral obligations, directed moral obligations, and uh, all things considered reasons which aren't, um, which aren't uh, moral in character. And uh, he says that uh, Raz's general account of, of, of the, the, the normal justification of thesis of general matter is concerned with generic practical authority. I mean, that's perfectly right. Uh, the question of whether or not one has uh, uh, an obligation to prune one's roses because one's friend has advised one to do that is a question of whether or not, whether or not one has um, not a moral obligation, but either uh, uh, directed or undirected moral obligation on all things considered reason for action, I think that's um, absolutely right. The claim to moral authority is specific to the law because of uh, uh, the way that the law affects or can potentially affect people's lives by uh, uh, requiring them to behave in ways that are, that are uh, of uh, significant, that are great significance so uh, Gideon is quite right about the, uh, the uh, general account of, of um, the, the general character of the normal just, justification thesis it does not lead to moral obligations it looks to uh, what he calls uh, generic practical authority um, I would say that in the case of a practical a, a practical I mean if we want to say that generic practical authority consists in um, uh, Practical obligations, whether directed or—I mean, I wouldn't—I wouldn't want to say that. I wouldn't want to say that uh, that uh, where one, ha one has a reason according to the normal justification thesis in a situation of generic pra practical authority, that one has a practical obligation. One has an exclusionary reason for action. It's a further which, which is which is different from an all things considered reason, uh, which is given uh, the third type of reason. An exclusionary reason, a specific type of reason that's conceptually specific to uh, the claim that someone has authority over someone else. The question that I was trying to address is whether that's an obligation 
in the creation of the law for, for reasons given. The question is going to be whether it's a moral obligation. And I think Gideon's right that it's not obvious whether it's directed or undirected uh, moral obligation. And I guess it could be both. I mean, I was, I was thinking that the law does claim as a general matter, in, in, in the public sphere, I agree that the private sphere is a different matter altogether. Um, in the public sphere that the law is, claims to impose directed moral obligations, it seems to me that in, the, in the nature of moral obligations that they be directed, but maybe that's, maybe that's, maybe that's too, uh, maybe that's too quick. I mean, maybe it could be that, uh, at least in some cases, um, what the law is claiming to impose and what it does succeed in imposing is uh, an undirected moral obligation. Um, he makes some further points of, about the nature of the obligation in, in uh, law, uh, tracking the underlying reasons and whether or not the, the, the underlying reasons uh, involve an obligation to someone else. And I think there's something to that. And I need to think a little bit, uh, uh, a little bit more about that, uh, offering a, uh, a more definitive comment on that point. Thank you, Stephen. Well, time is short, but we do have time for one or two questions, and um, I'll follow the uh, Madison program norm of uh, allowing students to pose a question first. Any students have a question? John Finnis's hand is up. Not John, to be a Accept the punishment, so the obligation displaced from the act to 
Directed a meter, so I <laughs> Well, the stone has hit the water, so uh, does anybody want to swim against the tide? Can I just ask a quick question about legal obligation, as you understand it? So, in one sense, to say that I'm legally obliged to do something is just to say that according to the law, I'm obliged to do it. In that sense, a legal obligation is like an alleged criminal. Right? The law says I'm obliged to do this. That's what it means to say that I have a legal obligation to do it. In that sense, I have a legal obligation to do A. It doesn't really entail I'm under some obligation to do A. It just says, according to some source, I'm under an obligation to do A. Right. Bye. 
I mean, actually, you started off with one thing. The specific intent example is one where the jury does make a finding about what was going on in your mind. So that's not an, an, an instance of non-application of the law. It's a, it's a judgmental thing as to whether the law as it's formulated applies. Um, and I, I agree with what you said about jury nullification. No, nobody has mentioned there is something called the general justification defense, which allows somebody to put forward the argument that all things considered in evaluating um, whether your act was justified, you, if it was justified, then you're not guilty of the, uh, the crime. But that, of course, doesn't get into the stuff that, 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 you, that was talked about up here, about what's going on in your mind, or whether you're an expert or not. It goes to whether objectively what you did was justified in terms of other things. Okay, I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there. Please join me in thanking our panel.